This is episode number 669 with Adrian Kosofsky, co-founder and chief product officer at Pathway. Today's episode is brought to you by Posit, the open source data science company, and by AWS Cloud Computing Services. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, the positively brilliant researcher and entrepreneur, Dr. Adrian Kosofsky, returns to the show to give us a taste of what the future of machine learning looks like. Adrian is co-founder and chief product officer at Pathway.com, a framework for real-time reactive data processing that is based in Paris. He has over 15 years of research experience, including nine years at INRIA, a prestigious French computer science center, leading to the co-authorship of over 100 articles in a range of fields, theoretical computer science, physics, and biology, for example, and he's covered topics in those papers like network science, distributed algorithms, and complex systems. He previously co-founded and led business development for Spodge.com, a competitive programming platform used by millions of software developers, and he obtained his PhD in computer science at the ripe old age of 20. Today's episode will appeal primarily to hands-on practitioners like data scientists, machine learning engineers, and data engineers. However, we do our best to break down technical terms and provide concrete examples of topics so that anyone can enjoy learning about the cutting edge in training machine learning models. In this episode, Adrian details what streaming data processing is and why it's superior in many ways to the batch training of machine learning models that historically dominated data science. He talks about how streaming data processing allows highly efficient real-time model training, how reactive data processing enables data applications to react instantly and automatically to never-before-seen input data, potentially saving firms vast sums. He talks about when it makes sense for a computer scientist to become a product leader like he did. He talks about why Pathway selected the particular programming languages they did for their platform and the big up and coming opportunity for data and machine learning startups. All right, you ready for this mind blowing episode? Let's go. Adrian, welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast for your first full length episode. You were here. Uh, we met at the Open Data Science Conference West in San Francisco back in the uh, Northern Hemisphere autumn. And you recorded an awesome episode on liquid neural networks. That's episode number 632. Fascinating technical, technical topic. Uh, Adrian, where in the world are you calling in from today? So I'm based in Paris. I'm calling in from just outside Paris, France from a place which used to be the countryside, but is now meant to be the Silicon Valley of France. Oh, yeah. Paris and it's the Pathway office. Is that right? It is. It is. Nice. And uh, so you're the co-founder, you're a co-founder, and you're the chief product officer at Pathway, which is a reactive data processing framework uh, that allows people to create real-time data products much more easily. Um, so I know that we're going to get into a lot of what Pathway is, but before we even get into that, I want to let our listeners know that you very kindly offered, you're offering 10 free hoodies to the first people that respond. So when I, when we release this episode, uh, it'll be 
It's always on Tuesday mornings from a North American perspective. It'll be the morning. And I post on LinkedIn from my personal account, a big post about what the episode is going to be all about. When I make that post, I'll include in it to say the first 10 people that ask for a pathway hoodie, get one. <laughs> and you're offering to ship them anywhere in the world. So that's very kind. Thank you, Adrian. It's our pleasure entirely. Um, These are really good hoodies. We hope you'll be satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, apparently they're hoodies so good that you'll want them even if you're in a very hot climate. <laughs> That's what um, they say. <laughs> we, we also do software, but we, we do hoodies most of the time. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so when you guys aren't designing hoodies, uh, tell us about the software that you make. So you have a reactive data processing framework. Yeah, tell us what that means and what can you do with it? Yeah, sure. So reactivity is all about the art of dealing with uh, changing data uh, in such a way that you don't have to worry too much about the processing part when data changes. I think if you want to be formal, there's probably some dictionary or encyclopedic definition of reactivity, uh, which will tell you it's about uh, being declarative, declarative in a programming sense, like explaining uh, the logic uh, without imperatively sa saying what to do at every step of a data transformation, but rather explaining uh, the rules in, in, in like a, a functional uh, programming sense, explaining what the transformation should be. And um, that's uh, that, that's about the the essence. So it's it's really combining uh, the ability to be declarative with uh, the ability to process uh, data changes automatically in an efficient way. So that's a notion known as incrementality. It's the idea that. Uh, when data changes, you don't have to do a full recomputation uh, of all the uh, models of all the uh, things that you've designed in your in your data pipeline or in your in your data science project. You just do a minimal recomputation uh, to react to the way data changes. So I guess the most best known example of a reactive system out there uh, is your spreadsheet. Call it Excel sheets, whatever is your preferred mm. software. You mm. define the rules on the data, and when the data changes, the cells update. So this is like right. one example. It's a data processing example. It's not one that scales very well, but it's it's an example of data processing. And actually, since spreadsheets came in, I think nobody has been able to fully replicate the success of this type of approach uh, at scale. And uh, we come with, with our attempt. I should say that uh, reactive reactivity is a concept that's very well known, very familiar to uh, front-end developers if, you, right. uh, if you've worked with, with JavaScript, TypeScript. Yeah, it's even probably the most famous uh, framework right now for front-end development is called React.js. It is. And the others that don't have React in their name are reactive, nonetheless. So. <laughs> <laughs> All of them are. And uh, like the, the kind of uh, place uh, this has got front-end developers to is that uh, you, uh, when designing a, a front-end system, uh, you don't have to do as much event handling as you would do 15 years back. So, so some of you may remember having to write things like on-click events to describe the state change of a button, you know, when you click, but you had to do it and so on. And these days in front-end development, you don't do it that much. 
surprisingly, in data processing, even data processing at scale, if you want to work in a real-time setup, you want to work with data that changes or with streams of event data, a lot of the time uh, you still find yourself doing the equivalent of on a click do or something like this. The backend equivalent is on data change event or on arrival of a certain packet of data do. Uh, and uh, this uh, is something that has to be done behind the scenes, no question about it. It's just that we don't necessarily want uh, the developer, be it the data engineer or the data scientist, to be exposed uh, to the pain of doing this type of on something event processing uh, after they've already had to put a lot of effort to design their system just to get their job done to create a model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems relatively straightforward to me to understand in the case of a user interface, we have a, a, a browser app that is reactive to somebody adjusting how wide the browser is or whether they come in on a mobile browser or a tablet or a desktop that the website automatically adjusts, or as you're saying, to behaviors, to somebody clicking on something and the, the application reacting to that. In the case of data changing, what does that mean? Like, what, what, how do the data change that are flowing into a machine learning system? Like the, the machine learning system, it could be handling different kinds of data types or uh, what is it? What, yeah, what, what does it mean when the data changes? So the, uh, the, the most straightforward setup, I'd say, is when uh, the data type does not change. You just have to deal with new data of the same type, just data that you haven't seen before. If you're, if you're a data scientist, uh, like the ideal world is when the data sample that you're working with mm -hmm. is the actual mm -hmm. data that will be, uh, that, that has to be analyzed. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're in the online ever-changing world uh, where date, new data comes in. This is never the case that, uh, that the, the data sample that you look at at the time of designing your model is the one for which you need to do the insight. So the, in some sense, the, at least the, the testing data, the real-world testing data is not known to you. Uh, sometimes, uh, even in, in real-world scenarios, it may be the case that the training data uh, so to speak, is not known to you. So your model is retraining itself or adjusting to new incoming data. Online um, learning. Online learning and, and things like this. So uh, this is, uh, this is the, the general setup. If you, if you like diagrams, you can picture data inputs on the left, data outputs on the right, and your data pipeline in between. And whatever fresh events come in from input uh, need to be taken into account. If you if you want to make uh, life fun, fun in in a, an architecture sense, you can also put a human in the loop, somebody mm -hmm. who's providing feedback uh, on on how your model is performing and saying, actually, we should tweak this parameter. Example, it's like you know, it's, it's today we need to adjust because it's a rather special day or something like this. Some some parameter for your forecasting prediction anomaly detection model, or the, the user can say actually in the training data there was a mistake and we need to pull out the training data point 
um, and, and say, look, this should never have uh, have been changed like this, or the label should have been changed, or a certain class of uh, automated inputs which entered the system may have entered uh, with uh, with incorrect uh, values, for example. Uh, M, there was some confusion between M denoting meters and miles. Uh, the data that input needs to be rescaled, and you have to sort of unlearn the data that came in previously and uh, relearn with the new data. So uh, anything, anything is kind of possible in the sense of data changes uh, for the system. So in the past on the podcast, we've talked about issues around things like feature drift, where mm-hmm. you design a machine learning model to be able to handle the kinds of training data that it's encountered in the past, but then the real world changes. And so the inputs, the features that are coming into the model, so in your, you, know, you described a flow from left to right. So on the left-hand side in those data inputs, the, the inputs are fundamentally changing. The structure of the inputs is changing. Uh, so even though, as you say, it's the same data type, um, you know, it's still <laughs> a 16-bit <laughs> float value, or it's a you know, it's an integer, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the the features are now in a range that are outside of your training data because the world has changed. So, is what you're describing this reactive data processing? It's designed to allow your machine learning models during online learning to be able to adapt to this this feature drift automatically? So uh, this is part of the story. I think reactive data processing should be treated very broadly. And um, if you you start implementing it uh, in a in a larger system uh, like uh, data pipelines in enterprise, which are processing event data. Uh, the start of the story is in data engineering. The end of the story is in analytics. In order to benefit fully from this type of framework, from real-time data processing in general, it has to be put into place like end-to-end, or at least it helps to put it into place end-to-end. And the the models, uh, the the analytics models, the machine learning models that come in are kind of uh, the cherry on the cake, but the, the one that allows you to do a lot of value. So we make sure to make this possible. Um, this is just to say that uh, in, in a strictly machine learning context, uh, this would be a very, um, let's say, uh, a good application and at the same time an ambitious one when you get to models which are sufficiently advanced uh, to um, to 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 be very much aware of... Um, Problems like feature drift versus, uh, let's say, an intermediate class in somewhere in between engineering and more advanced machine learnings of models uh, which uh, have a certain time horizon, a time window in which they learn, and they they are updated as this time window moves ahead. I'd say this is like a first more natural example in the real world project that you'll uh, you'll be looking at the last few months of data, some kind of moving average on the data and trying to adapt to it. So uh, indeed, it may be the case that we get into uh, into questions of uh, out models getting outdated and needing updating, uh, model versioning and so on. But this is some heavy machinery uh, which comes in relatively late in the project. 
uh, a lot of the time it's actually possible to uh, to to just adapt to the structure of the data itself by having a model which knows how to adapt to the structure of the data which has this capacity to uh, to to encompass um, horizons to be somehow scale free with respect to the nature of the data nice Every company wants to become more data-driven, especially with languages like R and Python. Unfortunately, traditional data science training is broken. The material is generic. You're learning in isolation. You never end up applying anything you've learned. Posit Academy fixes this with collaborative expert-led training that's actually relant to your job. Do you work in finance? Learn R and Python within the context of investment analysis. Are you a biostatistician? Then learn while working through clinical analysis projects. Posit Academy is the ultimate learning experience for professional teams in any industry that want to learn R and Python for data science. 94% of learners are still coding six months later. Learn more at posit.co slash academy. So let's try to make this example a bit more concrete by going into mm -hmm. a specific use case. So you and I were planning on later in the episode talking about global supply chain networks and how the pandemic kind of broke these and how reactive data processing combined with IoT, Internet of Things hardware um, could make, help make rather, uh, global supply chains more resilient to abrupt delays and shocks. So maybe let's dig into that specific use case now so that as we kind of address other questions around how reactive data processing works, we can like tie into the specific concrete example. Yeah, so actually, uh, we uh, started Pathway uh, working uh, closely with actors in the logistics industry, uh, working to improve global supply chains and global transportation patterns. Logistics is a pretty fascinating area because if you if you look at uh, the importance, the value, and the scale of the industry, it's about something like ten percent of the world economy. It's uh, oh, wow. so it's really big. It's highly concentrated, and a lot of the value is in international trade, uh, trade that goes uh, on containers, trucks, large vehicles, and uh, it's in some sense, uh, from a data processing perspective, uh, when we were starting, this was largely terra incognita. It was uh, a, a, a rather new world of analyzing this type of data patterns related to uh, to, to logistics assets. Uh, what IoT gives in this uh, setting is the ability to trace uh, moving assets, be it containers, trucks, parcels, you name it, end-to-end. -end. That is, you attach a sensor and you have the whole trace, the whole tag of, uh, of an asset that's moving. Uh, and uh, the, this, this leads to uh, an interesting situation in which something like 10% of the world industry has some of its most important data lying in one data schema, one data format, which is essentially a big table of events related to uh, moving assets. It's a table whose uh, columns are something like timestamp, asset ID, location, XY, uh, GPS, latitude, longitude, uh, and the type of event that happened, whether it was a, a kind of just a measurement of a location, whether it was a measurement performed by IoT, for example, of temperature, pressure, door opening, some kind of alert. And uh, 
this this kind of table actually captures a lot of other things in in, in logistics as well. For example, if if there's a, a facility where your parcels are being scanned, all such scan events also enter in this type of table. So you have one kind of input data uh, data data table data schema, uh, which uh, seems to capture everything that's happening, but which is quite unusable from the point of view of uh, business intelligence analytics uh, and and process monitoring and observability used directly uh, just because uh, it's super hard to query it's it's hard to express in a language such as sql a query on the data which would extract what's important and the important questions are related to process things that are happening so for example, uh, a, a logistics client may be uh, interested in uh, knowing uh, what are the risks of anomalies of a given type, like shocks happening to your sensitive pharmaceutical shipments in the next two days on a given route, let's say Rotterdam to New York. Um, and if you look at the data inputs, all the information is there with given a lot of man years and a lot of patience, you could probably get it in the end by hand, but it's not uh, all that easy to extract and automate over global processes. So um, the, that's that's where we started. We started working with uh, a process of enriching this data automatically, uh, converting the schema to add structure to it in such a way that it's actually possible in real time uh, to get an enriched data schema which is queryable and which reveals information about the process. Uh, there are a lot of aspects to it related to, first of all, trajectory mining, uh, understanding how things flow, uh, uncovering automatically the key locations. So this is like automatic geofence detection in the uh, lingo of, uh, of the sector. Uh, it's about uh, understanding uh, anomalies, congestion, delays as they happen or even before they happen and putting into into place uh, predictive models. So there, there are many steps here. And uh, already getting all of this done in a batch setting, a setting where you have all the data available, like just historical data, uh, is a challenge to ex express it um, cleanly and to get uh, get an analysis of a uh, of a snapshot, so to speak, of the data, um, and it's it's it 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 gets um, extremely complicated if you on top of this uh, you would want to uh, manually create logic in such in a way which uh, which would take into account changing data. It becomes a, a task which is both tedious, error prone, requires a lot of duplication of logic between the, let's say, the offline case and the online case and so on. So uh, so our effort was uh, on the one hand to automate this and on the other hand also to figure out what parts, what models uh, in machine learning, what transformations of data are actually amenable to this type of approach. Basically say, forget what cannot be done, focus on what can be done here and now, and make it possible to make this robust. Um, so the, just, just to give you an example, the types of um, data processing routines that we have, we des we've designed to work robustly across different modes of transport, be it uh, ship, 
truck, train, uh, container, or, or, or vehicle, uh, even working for, for small assets like parcels, sometimes with animals, sometimes with uh, public transportation. So basically to, uh, to, to have models which work with very little or minimal awareness of uh, what, um, what is actually being chased, what type of asset is being chased, to allow changes to this process, to allow new modes of transport to be introduced, to allow changes of, to the logical process. Uh, if you if you follow uh, like what your couriers and delivery people are up to before Christmas, it's actually amazing how the whole uh, logistics network adapts. Uh, there are new depots being opened, temporary depots. There's uh, changes to the process. Things are happening uh, completely differently in peak season. And if you want to make sense of it, you have to have a system which is able to take into account these changes as they happen. New depots open. Okay, it's not something that you will you will want to manually introduce. It's something that you have to uh, kind of capture from the data. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that is very concrete and crystal clear. So these real time data products, reactive data processing frameworks like Pathway, allow data models to be applied to complex systems like a delivery system like the global supply chain network. And it's reactive automatically to things like vastly greater volumes in peak season around Christmas time, heading into Christmas time, including things like hubs coming online that previously weren't there. And so you, you, um, you don't want to be uh, going to your data scientists and saying, hey, a new hub opened up um, <laughs> yesterday. It's December 1st and a new hub opened up uh, we need you to retrain all of the machine learning models that we had to be able to account for this new hub. Um, and then the very next day, two more hubs open up because we're one more day closer to Christmas. And you're like, sorry, data scientists, we got two more hubs. We need to retrain that data model again. Um, and every time the data scientists are like, oh, this is going to take like a week. Um, and so instead, with a reactive data processing system, it's it's flexible to these kinds of changes automatically. Yeah, and uh, that, that's exactly the spirit. Uh, the, it it's it's kind of also changes the whole workflow, the way the non-technical user can interact with the application. Uh, so you can have um, an, an expert in the domain um, who is working with a system, and rather than asking data scientists to update models, uh, they either get in the case of a simple model, you can actually redeploy the model as it happens or in some case you get a question whether you want to update your uh, your model or you update your your data so if we talk of these hubs that open at the beginning of the day uh, whoever's managing uh, the uh, the dashboarding part of the solution gets uh, information that we have detected 20 new hubs which opened since yesterday uh, please approve or correct uh, errors and uh, essentially, uh, the, the work of this person is more in act, in fine tuning or fixing things that didn't that were not uh, detected with, let's say, one hundred percent accuracy, or, or performing small corrections to the automatic um, labeling that's being done, 
rather than uh, than, than actually introducing uh, f- driving the change process manually. Uh, just to say, uh, from from our perspective, uh, this is where we started out with. So we started with one concrete data product in logistics, and this is our flagship data product. Uh, it's being used by major uh, companies, uh, uh, freight forwarders uh, like DB Schenker, which is uh, third worldwide largest freight forward in the world uh, by the French Postal Service. Services, uh, which also have a wide international network on this, uh, operating in other countries as well. So, um, the, uh, the kind of uh, use uh, there is what we see and we feel. At the same time, uh, what we are delivering is uh, the, this ability of uh, data scientists and data engineers uh, to work in the same way as we do. So we want this. We want to share the experience. Uh, we want to share the experience both with uh, with everybody, with the wide community, and also uh, with the data teams of our clients. To work closely with them, to allow them to modify the data pipelines, to include new data sources. So it's really um, very much about uh, about giving this uh, this full uh, development experience and and uh, and having it work. Uh, with uh, like having it work as 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 a as a developer tool nice uh that's crystal clear and so now that you have expanded beyond that initial use case your most developed product around global global supply chain networks uh what other kinds of use cases are people using this reactive data processing for so this is uh this is interesting because like uh, the the use cases uh expressed in our terms so I'm, I'm assuming we're discussing data here and data like data audiences uh, are extremely horizontal. They're not like tied to industry uh, specific verticals. Uh, so, so many of many of us change jobs, you know, between different companies, like going from from healthcare to uh, to let's say whatever transportation or manufacturing. But the the kind of uh, data of use cases uh, that that exist from a, you know from a data science perspective are pretty consistent throughout there's uh, anomaly detection in real time uh, predicting anomalies uh, detecting fraud which is a type of uh, anomaly detection uh, and recommendations uh, online uh, online updated recommender systems some some further ones which do appear in some cases are around forecasting and uh, time series forecasting plus plus uh, Let's say some, some, some that are further down the stream. But um, in in some sense, it's it's also a question of the most immediate value. Uh, the, the most immediate the most immediate pain point is really uh, the, the one where you need to act quickly, and uh, the time horizon uh, related to anomaly detection to alerting is just much much shorter uh, than the time horizon related to uh, updating forecast models typically. Right. So I can imagine financial applications, for example, where you're detecting fraud would be yeah. a really great use case. Yeah. Financial applications are a nice one. Uh, it's also interesting that you have several horizons in the financial application. Let's say you are doing real-time transaction processing, be it more on the major card processing uh 
actor side or on the DeFi side. Either way, you have a window of opportunity of two to three seconds to block certain types of transactions, those where the user is still not getting impatient. And then a post-processing um, like window where you can still undo some transactions or uh, try to fix things. But uh, things get worse in the horizon of seconds to minutes. Uh, so, so this time, time horizon is actually very, um, very short in this case. Uh, one that many of, uh, of us in data know is uh, is related to uh, monitoring of uh, of uh, health of systems um, of uh, processes that are going on. So things things around uh, um, observability uh, in in uh, processes server monitoring and because the the system as a reliability field. This is an interesting use case, which uh, which is very uh, special, but it also gives, I think, uh, an idea of the kind of uh, alerting that we are looking at. If there's a human operator involved, you want to react within uh, your SLA time window, which will typically be something like 15 minutes. This is the, the number that comes up most often given, given uh, guidelines of major companies. Uh, so you have like 15 minutes to react, and the kind of uh, data that you have is how many minutes of this 15-minute window that you as a human have to react are eaten up uh, by the system being slow to give you the information. If it's more than five minutes, you're really, really angry. But maybe you could go from five minutes to three minutes to 30 seconds. Sometimes you increase the value there, and you can actually you know, do way, way better if you if you get this alert faster. Cool. Are you stuck between optimizing latency and lowering your inference costs as you build your generative AI applications? Find out why more ML developers are moving toward AWS Trainium and Inferentia to build and serve their large language models. You can save up to 50% on training costs with AWS Trainium chips and up to 40% on inference costs with AWS Inferentia chips. Trainium and Inferentia will help you achieve higher performance, lower costs, and be more sustainable. Check out the links in the show notes to learn more. All right, now back to our show. All right, so now that I have a clear idea and probably our listeners have a clear idea of applications of this reactive data processing, let's dig into it technically in a bit more detail. So a big uh, contrast that comes up a lot in the context of reactive data processing and that even came up in a recent episode number 661 with Chip Uyen. So there's this idea of batch processing versus stream processing. And so what's the difference from a machine learning perspective uh, between these two processing modes, batch and streaming? And how does that tie into reactive data processing? So uh, actually, the the answer <laughs> uh, that that would be taken from a reactive data processing perspective is that if you time, uh, if you look at time, uh, time as something that appears in your data, if time is an important feature for you, then it's an important feature for you, and whether you are in batch or in streaming, you should handle time. If time is not a feature in your data, uh, then you should have the privilege of not looking at time and the system will be able to handle things for you. So just to give a very concrete example, let's take- <laughs> Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. You uh, just blew my mind. <laughs> let's take- <laughs> if, let's if, time, if you have the luxury of time not mattering, 
Yeah, and it's actually uh, something something like uh, time not being a feature means, for, for example, look at spam. Uh, what, what's a spam right. message? A spam message is the same, like you see spam, you recognize it, you treat the same thing as spam today as in a week or in a month. Right? It's Spam is spam. It's like there's no time aspect related to spam. However, uh, it might be the case that depending on how uh, the spammer is behaving, you may be able to detect a spam message at some point or not. For example, when somebody is sending a message for the first time, the spam filter may still not be aware that it's spam. But after a message has been sent 10,000 times, 100,000 times, uh, you, your, your model for spam detection or a spam detection filter will be able to figure out that something is amiss because of the behavior of, a, of a spammer. You, your spammer. Your messages are classified as belonging to a kind of cluster component somewhere, which is spamish, and all of this can be classified as spam. Right? So uh, in, in this sense, uh, what, uh, what's happening is that the incoming data uh, allows the model to improve its classification decisions over time. However, the logic of the classification process as such is largely not tied to time. It's, it can be Time doesn't have to play a role in it. You can do a lot of things without thinking about time. So what 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 the answer is in in a reactive setting is that you could imagine that uh, you have access to all of your data in batch mode. Basically, you have all of the uh, all of the input. You process it. You give the answers, and these are the best answers uh, you can have because they are answers given with all the knowledge. And then if you launch the same code in a reactive system, it'll be doing its best to maintain answers which are as good as possible given the current knowledge. So at the end of the day, it will converge to the same outcomes which you would have had if you had had all the information initially. And on the way, it'll be doing kind of a best effort classification based on whatever partial knowledge it has. So it may happen that a message comes into your inbox Call it Gmail, for example. Suppose Gmail has a reactive spam filter. Uh, it's uh, it's classified as non-spam, but five minutes later, when new information arrives, uh, it's it becomes automatically reclassified as spam and can be pulled from your, uh, uh, from your wow. So this is this is the idea that you don't have to worry about the deployment, the way how things are going to be, uh, you know, run, rerun. You don't have to worry about how the data streams unfold over time. Uh, you just design the logic, and you put it in the system, and you somehow uh, you are released of, from the worry about of, of of the streaming data. Cool. All right. So I know we're getting there, but so how does this how? We haven't like concretely defined this difference between batch mm -hmm. and streaming. Yeah, so batch batch is the concept uh, that uh, your computation uh, is run and scheduled. I think batch orchestration uh, scheduling these are concepts that all go together. They're part of the same mindset. It's one where you uh, look at the data as it is now. You uh, run a computation on it, or you run right. some processing on it, something happens. Eight right. hours later, 24 hours later, the scheduler says, rerun the batch, you rerun the batch, and things get updated. So it's right. this, so, this type of mindset. 
to give maybe an extreme example that gives a clear sense of this, when people have been using ChatGPT since it came out in late 2022, it it has a uh, a modal that comes up and gives you all kinds of warnings, like this is experimental. But one of those warnings is that the data hasn't been refreshed since 2021 or something like that. And that's mm-hmm. because the underlying model, so up until very recently at the time of recording, the, the most common uh, natural language model that people were using under the hood of ChatGPT was GPT 3.5. And this GPT 3.5 had been trained on a batch of data that was current up until 2021 at some point. And so there was this big batch of data and then it took, who knows, maybe weeks of training, maybe even months, I don't know. GPT 3.5 was so large that the whole processing pipeline could have taken months to do, particularly when they wanna add in all these kinds of um, safeguards around using it ethically. Um, And so, that model is not streaming. It's very much the app, the opposite. And you could take that same model architecture um, and update it in 2022 at some point, but it's only getting like this annual update uh, on a batch basis. Um, so you have these big batches of data. And so you're describing a situation where the batches could be much smaller, where it could be every eight hours or every 24 hours that we have a machine learning model in production that is um, that is where the model weights are being updated from new data so that things like uh, a new hub in the delivery network that came online in the last 24 hours is now going to be handled. Uh, you know, we have some data regarding this hub and, and we can be handling it. Yeah, so, the, so the, this kind of gives a sense of, of batches and how we can have big, big gaps between model refreshes or small gaps. Um, and then streaming is a completely different kind of perspective where it's like data point by data point in real time being updated. Yeah, streaming is exactly this perspective where the data flows in a, in a manner where when a new data point comes in, you handle it. So uh, if I think like to, to be perfectly like to, to, to take a maybe a human perspective and batch and streaming, uh, the, the inherent preference for for looking at batch or looking at streaming uh, depends very much on what what world you come from. If you're more in the mainframe or uh, static database type of thinking, you you, you probably have a natural uh, natural preference for for looking at uh, computational systems as batch systems. Uh, if you are more in the microservice design, APIs, things communicating, data flowing, uh, your your natural um, preference, your 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 first approach is is more around uh, working with with streaming data, um, and uh, the. For each each type of uh, system, whether it's uh, around batch uh, processing or around event-driven st- stream processing, has very different um, characteristics. Uh, in general, being event-driven um, has uh, the advantage, the obvious advantage of uh, of uh, lowering latency because you can react to new data as it as it arrives, so your models can update. Uh, the difficulty is in uh, making non-trivial logic work. 
And by non-trivial, I mean actually doing something like a database join, uh, which uh, is already uh, impossible in uh, most uh, data processing frameworks to maintain uh, a join of two data tables join as you would see it in, in, in SQL or in Pandas or whatever. This is something that's, uh, that's hard to do in real time, let's say, and that, that requires a special framework which has to know how to handle a join to be able to do it. So back in 2019, it was messy to do. Now more and more frameworks are catching up. Uh, but this is about the, the forefront in terms of uh, tooling as what's possible, what kind of difficulty of processing is possible in, in, in real time. Cool, cool. Yeah, so it sounds from, you know, I come from this, uh, <laughs> from this background of being a scientist. And so we ran discrete experiments and you get a batch of experimental results. And so I'm used to this idea of having like this specific table where like, okay, experiment one is done. I have my set of data. It has this many rows because that's exactly how many human participants we had in this first study. And then it's just kind of static uh, indefinitely. And I train a model on it might, and publish the results of the model. I might even make the data open source, uh, make it available freely online, uh, put it into the public domain. And then anybody can use my perfect table of data from experiment one that never changes. Um, and so, yeah, so I come from this batch um, this batch background, it's probably the case that people that are used to the kind of streaming situation that you're describing, people who are used to microservices, they're probably more likely to come from a computer science background or a software development background. So I'll, I, 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 I can give you an example because right now we're doing some experiments on our side where we're running benchmarks of Pathway against other frameworks. So we're doing an experiment. And um, in, if in some sense, uh, these experiments, let's say, last weeks. They take weeks to run. And you need multiple repetitions uh, of, of an experiment to get reliable data to be able to take, let's say, the median of the data points or some average or whatever. Uh, but imagine you just wait for the first uh, run to complete, the first run of your experiment. And you already have uh, a data source, which can be like, let's say, Google Sheets or Excel. And uh, Google Sheets is a better idea, gives a better idea because it's kind of more online, more live, where you've put um, you've put your, uh, your your experimental results there. And at this point, you can use whatever plotting software you like, uh, let's say Tableau, uh, to to get some uh, first uh, first charts out of it. And now suppose you continue running the experiment and as new data points arrive, you get a larger and larger sample and your dashboards are live, they get updated as the sample goes. And for example, once you've got five runs, a line which was a bit noisy at the beginning has kind of smoothed out because you've lost the statistic noise uh, level has been reduced. Uh, so your dashboard is a kind of live dashboard on top of a scientific experiment. So in some sense, in this way, you can uh, you can look at, at a scientific experiment being done in streaming mode. Uh, the new data is coming in, it's updating, fixing, fixing the dashboards, uh, and at some point you press stop, and this dashboard is production ready. And uh, this, this I think, is a good uh, point to say that uh, the fact that you are in streaming mode does not mean that you cannot uh, look at data 
back in time. It's a bit uh, like with most of our productivity tooling that we're using these days. We're used to the fact that you can look at the version history. You can go back some number of edits. You can go back to a past snapshot, a past version of the system. And uh, this is uh, this is especially important in distributed systems, uh, which uh, are serving uh, answers to requests. And you have to be absolutely sure that you are serving answers based on a consistent version across machines, meaning that you're referring to one snapshot, let's say from a few few seconds, few minutes back. But if there's a problem with the snapshot, you could also roll back to a past snapshot, maybe 20, 30 minutes back, or even further. So th- there's a kind of uh, notion of snapshotting uh, of, of the past, uh, but, but you're working inherently with a kind of timeline of, of things that move move forward. So, so is this, this constant movement, this constant timeline, is that maybe the most challenging aspect for machine learning engineers when they're trying to implement streaming applications? If, if you were using um, uh, an API which has streaming in the world in the name then it's an added challenge it's an it's it's a second challenge uh, i wouldn't want to say it's the um biggest challenge in terms of uh some kind of uh, ingenuity being conceptually um the most difficult that would be uh Undermining the the, uh, the the effort that's needed to actually get uh, get something going in machine learning, which is enormous, but it is an enormous challenge in terms of system deployment, system maintenance, making sure there are no bugs, making sure this uh, this uh, this is actually feasible to run. So the the industry standard for now is that going from uh, batch prototype, that means uh, static data, uh, data scientists showing a dashboard uh, to a live streaming deployment of the same dashboard updating in real time is roughly 10 times the effort. So I'm not saying it's necessarily 10 times the ingenu- same ingenuity needed. It's just 10 times the effort uh, at 10, 10 times the timeline, likewise. So the, it's a question of cost. It's a question of uh, of, of uh, some R and D risk involved, some risk that that, was, uh, that things will go wrong or that will not be moving fast enough. Um, to, and and afterwards, there's a question of maintaining this and making sure the system is going. So at this point, the system, if it's a streaming system, it has essentially hired somebody on the MLOps side on the uh, data uh, and engineering slash reliability side to to make sure that the, uh, the pipeline has been properly maintained. So it's a challenge to the degree that many systems never end up going from batch to streaming or from uh, from, from prototype to, to production with real-time data because this challenge is uh, just too much to overcome. Uh, and uh, depending on the depending on the setting, it sometimes may be the case that the project actually brings 10 times more value if put into place in real time or even more. But it just never happens because the cost side is too prohibitive or the timeline is too prohibitive. And uh, right. the, the, the approach that we are taking is basically to automate the second step, make right. it possible to. So streaming can historically be 10 times as complicated, uh, but it can offer more than 10 times the value once it's implemented in production. And real time 
reactive data processing frameworks like Pathway are designed to dramatically decrease that 10 times complexity in getting it set up and allowing you to realize that 10 times value. Well put, John. <laughs> the, the, cost, <laughs> the, the, the cost aspect is actually quite fascinating because um, as, as we do this transition from, from batch systems to, uh, to, to work more and more with, with streaming data, uh, there the, the are uh, a lot of dimensions on the cost side which come in with a, with a streaming system, which are not obvious. So one, one aspect is that the, 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 the structure of expenses uh, related to infrastructure, cloud infrastructure changes. Traditionally, streaming systems had a higher um, hot storage component requiring a lot of state to be maintained in hot storage and this is only changing now. This is a cost factor which is being reduced, and this is uh, this, this, the counterpart is actually that batch systems have an enormous computational cost associated with them because you are doing a lot of essentially useless computation every twenty four hours. You're recomputing, recomputing, recomputing the same things, even though maybe in the horizon of one day, one percent of uh, your input data uh, changed, you're doing right. a 100% uh, right. recomputation. Right. So in the case of, you know, of actors, when you, when you look at your, your cloud bill and you take the three components, which is storage, uh, data processing and uh, networks communication, let's say, if the data processing clusters, your, your Spark clusters or whatever else you're using to, to churn the data are generating a significant part of a bill, it may be the case that moving to uh, streaming-like systems or reactive systems, which allow you to transition through from micro batching into this this online world, will actually cut the bill of the Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting because to me, it seems inherently that if you have this continuous learning, oh, of course that's going to be more expensive because it's you know, always learning all the time. But I hadn't thought about it from this perspective that with batches you're retraining the entire model every time. Yeah. Uh, and so that is very computationally expensive. Very cool. I hadn't thought about this, that. There are many like, practical aspects to it. And one is just, you know, uh, it's, it's the reality around us that uh, ad hoc instances are often much more expensive than uh, instances that are reserved. So uh, the rule of thumb is that if, if your computation is running for four hours, five hours, six hours during a day, during 24 hours, it really makes sense to have an instance just reserved for this like 24 by 7 without asking for a new instance every time. And if you're in this space, by making this like batch computation spread out over time, you, you are already better allocating your resources because you... You, you get something like a factor of four or five in computational resources for, for free just by having more hours in the day to, to, to use. And uh, there are a, a lot of possible gains which, 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 which just come from this better like, spreading of, of, of computation over time. Very cool and crystal clear. So to allow these reactive data processing operations to happen efficiently over this 24-hour day as opposed to doing it in batches. Um, at Pathway, you talk about transformers. And so these aren't to be confused with transformer architectures that have become really common in large language models like GPT-4. 
uh, and going all the way back to the early transformer architectures like BERT, it's a it's a different kind of transformer. So it's kind of like <laughs> maybe how the word kernel is used in computer science to mean so many different things. Um, and so transformer here means something different. Although from our chat prior to beginning recording, it sounds like there is a kind of a common thread to the etymology of why a transformer architecture is called that and why your reactive data processing operations are called transformers. Do you want to fill us in on these transformers? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess this is a great question, actually. And uh, just to say that the name transformer is uh, is kind of uh, controversial in the sense that uh, obviously transformers are the of a T in GPT and, and and basically one of the more commonly used words on the as 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 a uh, as an architecture in, in deep learning, uh, and uh, the, the kind of backstory from our perspective is that uh, one of one of our friends and business angels is uh, a co-author of the original Transformers paper, so it's Lukasz Kaiser from Attention is all you need, and our, ah. our, our CTO also comes from the Attention slash Transformers world, so. It took right. a lot of internal discussion if we wanted to use the word transformers in a in in a pure data processing sense. Uh, just uh, there's not much depth to it. A transformer is something that uh, that transforms uh, one kind of data into another kind of data. In our case, a, it's, it's a box which transforms tables into other tables. Um, we are not the first to coin this term, and I think it's one of them, like on the data engineering side, it's pretty unambiguous. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think uh, for this season, we... Oh, really? So in data engineering, this use of transformers as an operation that transforms one kind of data structure into some other format uh yeah that's it's quite common it's it's used by some other frameworks i'd say i'd say that like we we didn't want to coin cool. new new terminology for it uh, there's actually an interesting um point which um which also helps to um to to, to taste this path between data engineering and data science is that in data engineering, a lot of the time you think of your data tables, data sources as assets, uh, meaning that there's, there's certain, like they have a physical representation somewhere in the data warehouse. And when you combine them, you create a new physical representation. And to do it, you need to run a job if you're in batch mode or something like this. So there's, there's a very physical, um, physical feeling to data flows, uh, whereas in the data, uh, science world uh, more often than not uh, you are designing a kind of block a building block which just uh, it's like a function which takes certain input parameters and uh, has certain output parameters which is much more flexible to use it's not tied to specific inputs it's more composable it can be used inside other functions uh, in in our case uh, in the case of pathway we have support for iterations so for example iterate a given transformation until convergence so you can have a transformer which is like one iteration of uh, let's say gradient descent and you you put it into a, a block which says iterate until convergence and then you get a new transformer which is like the, the looped version of the first one and and in this sense something that that has these like data table interfaces in and out uh, that's pluggable and, and moldable in the in the data flow is 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 is, is how we use the term transformer so cool uh, so now i understand what transformers are in the context of data engineering and of uh, transforming uh, some 
data format into another data format as part of this data flow. So uh, why is that so critical as a part of streaming and reactive data processing? So um, the, the, the kind of uh, place uh, which is uh, crucial here is, is actually being able to express logic easily, clearly, and uh, in a way which is accessible. And we're always somewhere on the boundary between declarative and imperative operations. So if you if you say uh, you want to filter a table leaving only values, values in which a given column is larger than 10, uh, you, you're defining a kind of block which says, let it, the data in, and you, you get one table at input, an output table with the same schema, but with fewer rows. So it's, it's as if you were wiring together blocks. Um, and the connections between these blocks, uh, you, 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 can f- you can feel a bit as if you were fiddling with, uh, with, I don't know, with circuits or whatever. You're just pinning them together and you get a kind of data flow. Uh, and, and this is like the, the outermost perspective. And somehow when you look inside each of these blocks, so when you're running a filter which just leaves values that are larger than 10, uh, you're probably doing a built-in, which is which is like a filter select or something like this, but you could be doing something a little more advanced, which is like applying a lambda function to every row of your table in the map reduce paradigm. So you could be doing something um, more powerful. And then you could also be doing some transformations uh, which are specific to multiple rows of the, of the table. So... Um, this comes in a lot when the data is interconnected. For example, when your data tables uh, represent a graph, a network, and the connections uh, between uh, nodes expressed by edges, which are pointers to other rows, and you want to perform some kind of local operations, for example, uh, uh, do a, a search of a given neighborhood of a graph. And there, uh, you, uh, you can switch to... Um, it's more convenient to switch to a programming paradigm where your main actor is not the table, but it's really the data row, the data element, the data node that you're working with, and you 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 act around it somehow. So you 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 you're not working with tables; you're you're working with with individual rows, and uh, this is what's happening inside the transformer. So if you peek inside, you have this possibility to uh, to work with individual data elements it's it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like to some extent if you define a kernel when you you mentioned the word kernel so a kernel is very much about designing a transformation which is around individual wires and uh, the, the the whole thing uh, the whole deployment has to has to perform uh, has to has to run for multiple kernels in in, par- in parallel so it's 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 the counterpart of this in the world of uh, incremental reactive data processing. Cool, and there are instances in the context, certainly of reactive data processing, where these transformer operations are themselves machine learning powered, right? And I think you've referred to those as smart replacements. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that's that's really the objective. And from from uh, being a product person, I'm I'm very much like on the developer experience front. Uh, this is uh, one of my um, hopes uh, here is to provide a seamless experience, uh, transitioning from uh, what you could call a relatively mu- mundane uh, data operation. 
which is defined in SQL to one which is in some sense smart or fuzzy or machine learning powered. Uh, to to give you uh, an, an example, if you take uh, the group by operation, which groups row of a table according to uh, a value of a given column, so standard group by, uh, this, this turns a certain number of groups of rows. If you take a clustering operation on the table, clustering understood in a machine learning sense, uh, clustering uh, also performs a grouping of data points. Right. So from an from an interface perspective, if you use a table or data frame API to express the operation, group by, as you see it in SQL or pandas, uh, and clustering with arbitrary custom logic have the same API. So in some sense for us, it's just an interchangeable box. If somebody is, for example, grouping, let's say, points in space by their X and Y coordinates, they put a group by type of box, but then they change group by to spatial clustering. And then the internals pass from an SQL-like database operation to a machine learning operation, which performs a clustering of points in, in space. Uh, so this is this is like one example for for group by versus <laughs> uh, versus cluster. Another is about, uh, for example, join versus smart or fuzzy join. If you're joining two tables by name, okay, this is a pure join operation. If you are joining, but there may be typos in your names or some other inaccuracy, mm. so you are not sure which column you're joining with which column, uh, then you're getting into some kind of fuzzy filtering and. Uh, the API again stays the same, but the implementation is completely different, and we are, we we switch like we make the transition from the data engineering to the data science side. Crystal clear. Thank you for those examples. They make it very easy to understand how uh, transformers can be machine learning powered and be these smart replacements in a reactive data processing framework. And you mentioned in your response there how you're a product person. So I think this is interesting. So we mentioned right at the onset that you're the chief product officer at Pathway. But uh, if I dare say, your background strikes me as the kind of background that somebody would usually have as a CTO, as a chief technical officer. So you have this very uh, technical computer science background. I know you're still hands-on today writing code and you're in this CPO role. And I so I think you might have given us a bit of a clue to the answer as to why it makes so much sense that you're the CPO, and it's because the Pathway product is designed for highly technical people. <laughs> it's designed absolutely, absolutely. I think <laughs> the main the main um, role goal of a product person is to understand uh, the uh, the end user and to to be like the end user. It makes things simpler, but at least to to understand the needs of the end user and to be able to have a certain empathy for these needs. Um, this is uh, this is why I guess for a technical person it's easier to be uh, a CPO of a, uh, a developer product. Uh, I would say if it were not a developer product, I'd be completely disqualified. Just not kidding. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's like um, 
it's 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 uh, too too tempting to switch sides and be part of a creative process and say, I mean, uh, what if we could add to our data processing engine something else that you know and starts doing doing a tech push and so on? Yeah, I I, I agree fully, but this temptation exists and uh, it's it's kind of a bit of a of a complication always knowing how the internals work. Uh, however, being being technical also means that I can actually test the product in action. I can add five lines of code in pathway uh, I can uh, see it I can see if I'm able to showcase the things that we are promising ourselves uh, I can uh, review some uh, showcases or pieces of open source done by others using pathway to see if, if it's all uh, meeting the expectations that, uh, that that are made of it um, especially given that uh, the state of data processing frameworks as it is uh, is such that uh, the the developer experience and the uh, the experience of maintaining them, scaling them, is one of the bigger issues because uh, things uh, just either fall apart or don't um, don't work one hundred percent of the time. So then the experience of actually introspecting debugging is not optimal, and this is one of the bigger pains of data teams. And having time to 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 experiment with how how we can resolve these issues and 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 work on the experience front is 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 a major uh, major challenge and major I think opportunity also for the space to provide some improvements here. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I can. It's crystal clear to me now when I was. Uh, preparing for this episode, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then it started to become really obvious. Okay, uh, he is <laughs> the, the perfect product person because he is the ideal user of this product as well. So speaking of your technical background, before Pathway, you were a computer science researcher for over 15 years, including at a renowned French institute uh, called INRIA in French. And it uh, translates into English as the French Institute for Research in Computer Science and Automation. And when you were that researcher for all those years, you published dozens of peer-reviewed papers. Uh, you specialized in things like network science, distributed algorithms, dynamical systems, and the transport optimization <laughs> uh, that Pathway um, specialized in initially. So um, do you have like a particular area from that time, from your research time that uh, was that you were really passionate about, maybe you're still really passionate about today. It seems like complex systems, for example, were um, a recurring theme for you. Definitely, definitely. If you if you zoom out, you know, and look at a large system where things are moving, it can be in nature with ants cooperating in the task. It can be a transportation system. Then you, you look at how it's built, how it works, how the local interactions drive the system. And it's it's fascinating to observe this uh, from uh, also a computational perspective, and ask why it's working like this. So why is the uh, why is it working, and what does it achieve in this way? And can we learn from it? Uh, can we learn things about it? Can we learn um, certain approaches? Can we try to transfer them into computational paradigms? Or vice versa, can we uh, use computational paradigms to explain uh, complex systems? I think I think one of the recurring themes which uh, which which exist in in complex systems is this ability of distributed control and coordination, um, which is which is fascinating. Uh, another which is probably closer to uh, the 
let's say, for big challenges of uh, both machine learning and computer science uh, for the next decade is one of low energy computing or energy optimization. If you if you look at uh, distributed systems, they actually, through the fact that they are so distributed, they, they do things locally, uh, they, they learn things, they improve things uh, with relatively little interaction, little communication, little computation, and little cost. And uh, for an ant, it's obvious that it cannot you know, use up more energy than it has because it has to eat to get this energy. So it's kind of optimizing as well for the computation effort. It cannot have a bigger brain because uh, that would eat up its sugar. So uh, there are things that, uh, that data in nature that are driven by energy. Uh, in, in the, um, let's say, computing world, especially in the deep learning world, this is something that's uh, kind of, acknowledged that we are not optimizing for energy and in and that a lot of these computations are uh, are done in uh, in a way which uh, well uh, just gets gets things done with uh, by scaling uh, resources up uh, scaling cost up but since it's so important we don't uh, we don't think about the the energy impact and um the, the, actually, the, the incremental way of computation and also assuming computations are more energy efficient. So it's somehow um, more natural for me to be in this space, which cares about the amount of data updates that are happening in these systems and doesn't just recompute everything from the beginning. Right. The ant brains in a streaming processing system don't need to be as big because <laughs> they're just online... <laughs> <laughs> making decisions one little piece of food at a time. <laughs> See, <that's laughs> one fascinating. <laughs> it's, it's quite fascinating with ant brains that the, uh, the more external storage uh, an ant can rely on, like leaving pheromones, uh, the less it, it needs to store uh, in its head. If it cannot mm. rely on external storage, uh, like because it's too hot in, let's say, the Israeli desert, uh, then it has to do more computations and they do rely more on internal <laughs> storage and for base wells up. So the, these surprising trade-offs between uh, like communication, uh, storage, and computation happen in nature and they're, they're very like neatly captured by a lot wow. of those models. So, so it's kind That's of... That's so cool. So, Yeah. I, I guess uh, there are many challenges that uh, that nature uh, and that complex systems uh, are remarkably good at it that we haven't quite grasped. One of them is uh, the ability to forget. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, many natural systems have, which is naturally forget things they've learned or they unlearn things. Um, this is something that's uh, not super easy with uh, deep learning models. So... Uh, it is, it is more, the, again, the area where lightweight models or models which have some kind of ability to, uh, to add delete data points uh, that, they, they, that, that, that have, a, uh, have an edge in this area. And it's some, somehow... <laughs> rich, rich opportunity for more research there, for sure. And so you made this leap from all these years of research into being a startup founder. How did you make that leap? And... Is there anything that you miss from being a researcher? It sounds like you still get to do a lot of fascinating research in the role that you're in. Uh, definitely, I, I get to miss the, the frustrating part of being a researcher. So, <laughs> like uh, one thing Grant that I've, I've 
I've, I've discovered is that it actually uh, gives more, more joy to to deliver code uh, or, or like uh, small showcases around code, which is open sourced, than to uh, to focus on the full effort of writing uh, papers. Uh, maybe GPT-4 will change that and actually the paper writing part will be taken <laughs> care of. We just have to focus on delivering the essence for now. But, uh, <laughs> but there, there, were, uh, there are many exciting exciting challenges in what we're doing now. That's too. Um, I, I should say I'm, I'm not completely uh, new to the, uh, to the enterprise slash startup uh, world. Uh, Given that uh, something like almost 20 years back, I started a programming community called SPOJ.com, Spodge.com, which grew to be uh, in its day one of the largest competitive uh, programming communities. Uh, It was, we we really did it for the excitement of actually getting people to to use, uh, to to learn competitive programming to boost their skills. Uh, But we also needed a lifeline for it. And interestingly enough, the the, the lifeline, the, the revenue channel uh, there was uh, through enterprise who were interested in putting into place a similar framework for their enterprise training programs in uh, what was known as algorithms at the time and then started being called data science, uh, but with a, with a gentle migration around 2010. Um, but uh, this was uh, this was also an interesting experience uh, for, for me, like drafting my first contacts and doing, uh, doing my first sales and uh, at the same time having this enormous opportunity which was to drive a community, be part of a community, take feedback from a community, and and to learn the things that uh, that, that I, I, I sort of need in in, in to, to to make the product better. Nice, very cool. Uh, I, yeah, I actually I was hoping to speak about <laughs> Spodcom, <laughs> uh, so I'm glad that you managed to tie it in there. And so, uh, given that you are still hands on today, so despite being in the CPO role. Uh, you know, very senior role in a fast-growing startup, you still manage to make time to be hands-on day-to-day. Um, I'd love to hear what your week is kind of like, what kinds of roles, what kinds of hats you have to wear over the course of the week um, when you're, you know, there's product design aspects, there's programming aspects, uh, you end up, you make podcast appearances, <laughs> conference presentations, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's, there's multiple hats. There's the hat of uh, the product person, and that is already many shades of uh, of one hat because the product person is all about uh, collecting uh, input uh, about features which comes from 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 outside. Uh, that could be from outside, meaning from users who are happy, unhappy, or expect some prioritization, or just have some comments. Uh, comments from uh, Clients who, uh, who which come in through through sales channels and so on, and somehow aligning these needs uh, with what is actually uh, feasible, what is uh, proposed uh, by uh, the CTO, by the development team, with uh, with a longer term roadmap, which is. Uh, Kind of originates from us and from what we would see in the system. So somehow, uh, the uh, being able to make an informed uh, prioritization decision about the different uh, f- features, elements, aspects uh, that uh, that come in uh, is, is is part of my role. Um, it's it's an interesting place to be because when part of your product is uh, essentially a framework which has an API. Uh, your features are like code in a way, <laughs> and then uh, this, this 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 means it's actually way way closer to to code. 
Uh, another hat uh, is about uh, actually being able to uh, work with the community, uh, the, the users uh, who are excited about the, the, the product and to, uh, to, to be able to either help them or at least uh, understand better where they are excited and see if we can, uh, if we can make the product meet expectations. Uh, so this is uh, very much about uh, both uh, making making reach outs, which are maybe not too um, overwhelming, just to say basically, hey, we are there. If there's anything we could do better, we understand that the framework is uh, relatively new still, so it's robust, but you don't have 10,000 answers on Stack Overflow to, to guide you. But we are here for you. We're here on Discord. You know, you can uh, you can exchange with us freely and like. Get answers probably sooner, and actually also have like ten excited members of our development team who are able to uh, to to help guide and, and potentially come up with new ideas together. So this is this is pretty exciting as well to to be part of the animation uh, of this. Uh, one thing uh, one thing which which I've done uh, for Pathway and uh, which. Uh, I know some organizations, and we're not the first to do it, so I know some organizations have done it. One uh, organization that has done it is GitHub. Uh, we've pushed a lot of the workflow into a combination of GitHub with uh, pull requests, with uh, content creation, for example, through Markdown. And if you imagine that you have a monorepo, a base which uh, includes your code, your website documentation and your content pieces. This means that there are no barriers in the workflow uh, between team members uh, who are more on the marketing side, content marketing side, or on the uh, on the side of uh, actual creation. Anybody can contribute on a fair basis uh, using the tooling. There's a certain um, onboarding effort which is perhaps higher than just with with platforms that are not meant for developers, so you have to devote two hours at at a minimum to onboard every new team member. But once the process is flowing, anybody can contribute, and it's kind of transparent uh, whether you're contributing to the code base, to the documentation, to the content around it. Uh, so so there's, there's a, it's much more natural that the key developer will say, hey, we are not explaining this right on our website. Let me fix it. And uh, likewise, uh, somebody is not just writing an article or a content piece about it. They're delivering uh, a full executable piece of code which can uh, be compiled uh, by 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 during during a, during a ci cd process into something that goes live as an article on a website and also tested in the process whether the la latest version of the framework doesn't uh, like it's, it's not broken or that, that there's no issue with uh, with things executing properly so that we can be absolutely sure that our content meets developer standards and we deliver quality yeah a lot of different uh, hats that you have to wear, of course. Yeah, I, I tried to try to reduce this one. Uh, it, it's something that you can pull off probably only in a developer product uh, oriented uh, team, but one that I highly recommend if you happen to be doing one. Uh, just uh, make make Markdown the language in which people talk to each other, technical and non-technical. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. can do basically everything there from from like uh, websites. Uh, in some sense, code as well, or code that generates markdown and drawings, anything is possible. So, uh, so you start feeling like one big Wikipedia and one web of knowledge, and everybody's kind of interconnected. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to work. And I have some kind of experience with that in a smaller scale, where the uh, the first book that I wrote, Deep Learning Illustrated, 
it's in LaTeX, so not Markdown, but we did everything in GitHub. So I had um, Grant Bailabelt, who works on my data science team at my machine learning company, Nebula. He, um, he was a co-author on that book, and we were able to push um, updates and uh, be able to very easily comment and be able to track changes uh, through that kind of system. And I thought it was really intuitive and straightforward and gave a great, um, a great record um, of how things are changing in the system. Um, so what kinds of, other than this uh, GitHub trick uh, that you're suggesting for teams to work with, what kinds of tools do you use daily? Like what's your programming stack like personally? So I'm, you know, I'm, I, I try to be hands-on, but I'm already like in between the two worlds. I don't have a super advanced stack. Just to say I, I use one laptop screen. So this says something about me. If I'm, uh, if I'm <laughs> working on one screen, it means I'm like a, a developer, but not, I, I wouldn't be able to to aspire to certain circles, um, but for, uh, one of the things we have in our setup it's 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 a remote setup, which means that the develop machine develop uh, everything is set up for for remote development, uh, so everything is is uh, working on the same developer machine that's shared in the team, uh, which which means that I'm using the same setup as as everybody, which is uh, a stack meant to be productive. Uh, we do have some uh, you know, preferences uh, in terms of IDs. I'm, I'm usually a VS Code person myself, like most of the team. But this is just for this is just the front, and the rest of it is what comes through with uh, with our tech setup uh, as as defined by our CTO. So uh, <laughs> I, I get to benefit from from this. And actually, uh, having a, a remote work setup is something that uh, that comes through, and having all of the team on board with it, uh, including. Uh, for example, the persons who are doing uh, sales demos uh, to be able to to have this workflow in which you can uh, provide a, a demonstration uh, on on a remote machine that everybody has access to in a, in a specific place. It, it kind of uh, makes it much 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 smoother to to have the the workflow going all across the team. Nice. Uh, and so that tech stack that your CTO defines, what is what are the what's the core programming language, for example, at Pathway? So Pathway uh, is a Python front to Rust engine. Uh, we we are neatly between the two. Um, in general, a, a user of Pathway uh, stays on the Python side, has the ability to to use SQL, but which is inspired to Python. And then uh, Python is, is is meant as the language for expressing most of the logic. Uh, it uh, largely how to say it compiles out of the equation in the sense that the, the Python uh, code disappears, disappears, disappears. Sometimes some function calls survive, but to the extent possible, uh, the Python uh, operations are replaced either by Rust calls or by Numba, depending on the case. So it gets uh, low level and Gil lock <laughs> like like lock free and so on. So uh, so so there are no there are no bottlenecks there, and the, the computation is taken care of on the Rust side. So the team is 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 is, is largely either on the Python side, on the Rust side. Uh, we do have um, the um, enterprise offering, which also includes uh, 
uh, dashboarding layer uh, to to be able to present nicely interconnected uh, dashboards which allow for data set exploration on top of uh, what's uh, avail made available by by pathway so pathway does for data enrichment uh, allows uh, puts forward tables of data that are ready for business intelligence for business anal analysts to work with and we do demonstrate this through uh, through a SQL layer uh, with uh, several hundred dashboards that Depending on the data, um, data model and logistics, of several hundred that we that we can propose to uh, clients or to to uh, to uh, even data engineers, data teams on the client side to customize for their own needs, or that we can customize. So there's a certain SQL layer to it as well. Mm -hmm. So the the Python makes perfect sense to me as the what you describe as the front end to your product um, because if this is designed primarily for data scientists, machine learning engineers to be using, Python is the lingua franca of data science and machine learning, so it makes perfect sense. When you were deciding to work with Rust behind the scenes, so it's a functional programming language, it's one of the most popular functional programming languages today, but how did you make that particular decision that this would be the right language in the back end? I would say that uh, the decision took itself because at the same time, several people with uh, similar mindsets, some of them on our, on our team, some of them also involved in uh, open source uh, projects, uh, decided to make Rust uh, the, the language uh, of choice um, to uh, it 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 has a certain uh, number of advantages also from 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 our perspective uh, in terms of uh, of the quality we can we can deliver we can be sure to deliver. Uh, but just just to say that uh, let's let's say the, the Rust ecosystem has grown to a degree where uh, it's actually just as easy, if not easier, to find a data stack uh, with a Python front end, which has a Rust backend or Rust data representation. Uh, so uh, Polars, for example, as a pandas replacement. Uh, this, this, this means that we are not, we are not losing anything uh, by having to um, interface just a bit more to the C part of the world. It's, it's it's still possible. It's just uh, not a big deal for us to have a slightly more complicated glue to 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 see uh, see libraries. Uh, uh, it's 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 not it's not not that it would be a major argument in the discussion. And other than that, if we have uh, folks who are on board who are willing and happy to use Rust and deliver better quality in Rust, it's a big uh, it's a big gain. There are some anecdotal places where. Uh, Rust safe typing is causing us uh, some extra work, but at the end of the day, everybody is happy that it was there. So, um, right. <laughs> got it. Nice. Um, and so, we we know from this episode, <laughs> and also from your previous appearance on the show back in episode number six thirty two, that uh, you're a brilliant person. You can go really deep into into the technical weeds on a wide variety of topics up and down the technical stack from the low end code all the way to you uh, having a product work well for a user. Um, so I think a really interesting question for you is if there is some kind of approach that's up and coming, <laughs> it could be 
maybe if it happens to be data science, that'd be ideal, but some kind of approach or technique or tool that you think is emerging that our audience should know about and be excited about in the years to come. Uh, this is this is actually a a big a big question, and now you've made me feel uh, like uh, <laughs> that I have to take care <laughs> of the predictions I make because like ten years from well, now, it, and we, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, it, it could right. be something just something that's happening now. Yeah, uh, that that our audience should know about that maybe they, they wouldn't hear about uh, elsewhere. I think one of the uh, one of the things that um, I, I should say as as a, as, a, as a product person is that um, productivity is important uh, and the the, um, the the kind of dive around productivity uh, that's been uh, the Silicon Valley DNA essentially it's it's like everybody reorienting towards productivity is uh, here to stay and this is something that we see as well also with uh, the uh, let's say for B2C applications of artificial intelligence, they're very much oriented towards in, increasing the, uh, the productivity of, uh, of, of, of people. So it's actually like B2C or B2B from the sense, from the point of view of, of, of being a productivity tool at work uh, or a productivity tool uh, in, in our personal lives. And this is, this is still uh, there. Uh, and um, I, I would Personally, also want to uh, to to see um, the 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 uh, aspects of um, growth of of uh, learning methods uh, that uh, that kind of counterbalance this with um, with, for example, en energy efficiency or the ability to do uh, low energy computing and to take into account. Um, Certain uh, certain other aspects of uh, certain other aspects of, of uh, machine learning models beyond, uh, let's say, what what LLMs uh, are capable of delivering. So uh, I think I'm I'm one of those who uh, who, who will be uh, pushing for the so-called niche in the sense of uh, the number of applications that you see, but one which has an enormous value tied to it from the point of view of both uh, data processing and enterprise and behind the, delivering value behind the scenes and uh, helping uh, guide uh, people, organizations towards uh, more informed decisions, towards uh, better insight. So it's more the, 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 uh, the data insight part of the world that's, uh, that's, that's kind of, I don't know if this makes sense. Right, right, right. So, you, so you're, I think your main point is that there's a lot of focus on productivity. Um, so things, of course, like ChatGPT, this is seen as a productivity tool. Uh, and you made the joke that maybe this makes it easier to write papers as an academic. Um, but what you're saying is that there's still a big gap in being able to get insights automatically from data. I'd, I'd say this is the case. And I'd say, um, I'd say we are missing something. We are missing some uh, blocks. We are missing some bricks to be able to, uh, to, to, to bridge the two worlds. For the next uh, five years, I'd say that the uh, type of uh, insights that we'll be getting will still be based on pre-deep learning era models predominantly, that is the ability to put these 
models which into place in the right way to uh, deploy them to make them um, work in in an from an operations perspective and the lobs is similar correctly that's the, the big effort and mm-hmm. once we've bridged, bridged that effort uh, we will be left with this uh, this question whether we can get you know human level insight out of a system that's Performing too much data uh, analysis for a human to to actually to churn through. So so uh, here we are we're still very much in the um, in the in the range of uh, decision support tools on the enterprise side. We we have not made this transition uh, from decision support uh, to uh, to to uh, like. Something, something, something further than this, and I, I think there's. It's because the ingredients missing. It's not just that nobody's trying. It's, it's something's missing. Nice, cool. I love that insight <laughs> into the missing insights uh, <laughs> in automation. All right, so Adrian, I've already taken <laughs> way more time than I promised you I would. Uh, so thank you very much for being generous with your time today and sharing so many of your insights with us. At the end of every episode, I ask for a book recommendation. Do you have one for us? Book recommendation. Wow. Um, for for book recommendations, uh, I um, yeah, uh, off the top of my head, uh, actually, if you you mentioned Rust, uh, and we started talking about like uh, learning Rust. If uh, if you if you want to learn Rust, then the Rust documentation is kind of like a book. And I think it's uh, it's it's actually uh, an amazing experience. So this is just something spontaneous, spontane- just to say spontaneously that the the Rust book is there, and it's it's a way where you the the the, the difference between a documentation and a book has blurred itself. That's that's one of the reasons why I like Rust. But um, in terms of uh, in terms of like looking at my mini bookshelf in this office, I'm uh, as you said, I'm a complex networks person. Uh, so anything uh, related to uh, to to complex networks always uh, is a good uh, good thing to read. Um, complex networks are everywhere, from uh, real world systems, uh, social networks, uh, our brains. Everything here is, is, is a complex network. Uh, the uh, I'd say for, for an introduction by uh, Newman or Newman and co-authors. It's always a good thing to do if you haven't read it. And some of the more recent uh, works out there, John, I think you may have actually a, a better overview here. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have a better uh, suggestion on on complex networks books. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't really know that space at all. Though it sounds fascinating. I do want to be thinking about the world more in terms of ant brains. <laughs> so that sounds like one I should be picking up. So one, one thing I'd, I'd say is actually when you take any networks book, complex networks or whatever, they have these pretty covers. You know, there's always this, uh, this graph on the cover. Yeah, if you have one of those, it usually makes for a good read. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it explains judge, like anything. <laughs> you can judge a networks book by its cover, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. And so, Adrian, how do people follow you after this episode? If they want to glean more brilliant insights from you uh, after the episode, where's the best place to track what you're up to? So um, I have no like ambition, aspiration to be uh, like an influencer. I'm happy to chat, <laughs> exchange with anyone. Uh, you'll find me regularly on our path- Pathway Discord. <laughs> so that's Discord, GG slash Pathway off of a Pathway. I think so I'm, I'm, I'm there. I mean, it's uh, like, so I'm happy to uh, ex- exchange with uh 
with anyone from the community who who has uh, like an interest in uh, in any topics that are broadly uh, related to to reactive data processing and so on, or or nice. to, uh, to 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 networks network science topics and how they're being treated. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on Twitter. A bit less. Nice. All right. Sounds great, Adrian. Uh, yeah, so that's a very nice offer for listeners. You can reach out to Adrian on the Pathway Discord, and it sounds like at this time he has bandwidth for individual questions. So still, you can pick yeah. his brain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully that's still the case when this episode is published. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so thank you so much, Adrian, for making that offer, as well as the hoodie offer going all the way back to the beginning of this episode. Uh, and thank you for being so generous with your time as well. And yeah, we'll have to check in with you on your journey and the pathway journey again uh, in the future. My pleasure entirely, John. Thanks for having me and hope to see you at a conference sometime soon. For sure. (laughs) That was an incredible episode with a brilliant guest. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. In today's episode, Adrian filled us in on how batch processing is associated with training machine learning models at discrete intervals. This could be daily or monthly or whatever, while streaming processing allows for computationally and cost-efficient real-time ML model training. He talked about how reactive data processing allows an application to react to data it hasn't encountered before, handling it seamlessly and potentially saving firms vast sums such as in financial fraud detection situations or with complex evolving systems, such as the global supply chain network. He talked about how the transformer operations that transform data during data flows can be dynamic or fuzzy when they're powered by machine learning. He talked about how Pathway elected to go with a Python platform interface to be easily usable by machine learning practitioners, while they chose Rust for high performance behind the scenes. And he talked about the big commercial opportunity of filling in the missing bricks for extracting useful insights automatically from data. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Adrian's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 669. That's superdatascience.com 669. I encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by tagging me in public posts or comments on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. And if you'd like to engage with me in person, as opposed to just through social media, I'd love to meet you in real life at the upcoming Open Data Science Conference East, ODSE East, which will be in Boston from May 9th to 11th. I'll be doing two half-day tutorials. The first one will introduce deep learning with hands-on demos in PyTorch and TensorFlow. And the other tutorial, uh, which is brand new, will be on fine-tuning, deploying, and commercializing with large language models, including models like GPT-4. In addition to these formal events, I'll also just be hanging around and grabbing beers and chatting with folks. It'd be so fun to see you there. All right. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another mind-blowing episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors, whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting this free show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. 
It's because you listen that I'm here. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.